0: 1 Thessalonians 2, so I encourage you, if you haven't turned there, to to turn there. You know, um, the uh, second coming of Jesus is just the theme of 1 Thessalonians. And and um, there was so much talk about it. We don't talk about the second coming much anymore. There was a lot of talk about it during the Jesus movement. And, and um, one of my sons said, Dad, I can pick one of your songs out in a heartbeat. I mean, somewhere in there, Jesus is coming back. Okay, I get it. But um there was a lot of talk about it. But you know, there was, it, it, there's a reason to be excited that he is coming back for us in Titus chapter 2. It says, this is our blessed hope. Don't throw out the, the second coming of Jesus. It is our blessed hope. It is what we have as an anchor for our soul. The, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, is what it says in Titus. And it, it seems that it's so easy to throw it out along with the polyester leisure suits, you know. Anybody over 50 would say, throw out the polyester leisure suits. Yeah. Amen? Okay. But keep the second coming, for crying out loud. This is, this is our blessed hope. But as we look at our passage this morning, what we're going to be looking at is two things. Um, first off, Paul deals with how he got to uh, Thessalonica, how he ended up in that town, and, and it's just a, a fascinating story. Paul said, God's the one who put me here. And then secondly, he's going to make an appeal to him by basing it on his conduct while he was there. I dealt with you honestly, earnestly, in a godly fashion, and he's talking with them. I want you to listen to me because of these two things. God is the one who got me here, and we conducted ourselves in a righteous fashion while we were there. So let's look there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. It says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that are coming to you... Was not in vain. When he came to Thessalonica, it, w- it was profitable for all of them. Now, the first question we want to look at is how did he get there? Let's look at a map. We're going to find this map talked about in Acts chapter 16, I encourage you to turn to Acts 16 for a minute, and we're going to look at a lot of the places on this map, but Paul found himself down in this region of Phrygia, and there's a town right there at the point of that arrow on that green line called Mysia, and he found himself close to that. He thought that God was calling him to go up toward Bithynia, which is that region there at the southern coast of the Black Sea, and he's going to... Cross that isthmus and go up into Asia. Take the gospel up there. But something happened. Look there in Acts chapter 16, verse 6. It says, and they went through the region of Phrygia. There is Phrygia, right there above Antioch. And Galatia, over there, where I'm pointing. Having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia. This region up here on the the north coast there. And the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, there on the coast, and they caught a ship. Verse 9, A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia. That is that region right up here. There's Macedonia. There's Macedonia. It's above Greece. Sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So they get into Macedonia. They land at Neapolis. And they head north and go into Philippi. God has sent a vision. How many of you have ever moved based on a vision? Huh? Some have. A vision of your neighbor's yard? A vision of your neighbor's yard? Okay, I'll I'll hear that story later. That sounds, (laughs) sounds like a good one. They come up to Philippi. They've moved there on a vision. Everything's looking great. God has spoken. When they get there, they meet a woman named Lydia. They lead her to the Lord. They lead her entire family to the Lord. They baptize the whole lot of them. And while they're hanging out with Lydia and her family and just preaching the gospel, it says in chapter 16, verse 16, that a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her much owners much gain by fortune-telling. She was following Paul and them around. She's giving them a hard time. Well, Paul finally got tired of it. Look what he does there in verse 18. He turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Oh, and they're going to be so excited. The deliverance crusade has arrived, Right? Man, it's so wonderful. Everything's going great. They're going to be thrilled. Look in verse 19. When her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, look in verse 22, the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. That's about the worst welcoming committee I've ever heard of. My mother drove us to Alaska from El Paso, Texas, drove five screaming, stupid kids and a dog in a station wagon from El Paso, Texas to Alaska in 1967. And when we got to Fairbanks, you go to the visitor center, you know, and, and it's obvious we're from somewhere else. And, um, oh, you're visiting in Fairbanks. Yes, we are. Well, let us greet you. And they gave us this cardboard, this gold cardboard key. And you put it on the dash of your car, and it's the key to the city. You can park anywhere you want. Paul did not get a key to the city. <laughs> he got his clothes ripped off of him. this is worse than Jerry Springer. And they're beating him with rods. Verse 23, When they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw him in prison, ordering the jailer to keep him safe. Well, throwing him in prison, enough, so look at what he does in verse 24. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison... And fasten their feet in stocks. Let's see you get out of this. And now, Paul, having received the vision down here in Troas, having gone across to Philippi and Lydia and her family gotten saved and the demonized delivered and the gospel's being received, he's got to think everything is wonderful. And then he ends up in prison. And I wonder, yeah, I got to wonder what he thought of it now. I wonder if he's sitting there in the middle of the night going, What in the world? Have I got this would make a cable TV show in prison in a foreign country? But you know what he does? He starts worshiping. He must have had one of those infomercials on cable that night advertising those worship albums. Do you think that's what it was? No, just out of his spirit, Paul started worshiping. And when an earthquake came, knocked all of the walls down, set every, all the prisoners free, and the jailer knew it was his head on the line. So he pulls out a sword. he's about to kill himself, and Paul says, don't do it, not yet. We're all here. And when he heard that, look in Acts 16.30. The jailer came running to him and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved and your household. Why did that jailer get saved? Paul hadn't been preaching. He hadn't been holding meetings that this guy was apparently aware of. But you know what? It's just out of the devotion and the consistent worship of a life devoted to God. In his darkest moment, Paul still said, Jesus is worthy of worship. And this jailer, this jailer saw a difference in Paul's life, in the life of those with him. And he said, I don't know what you've got, but whatever it is, I want it. What do I have to do to have what you have? What do I have to do to be saved? And friends, it was Paul's godly, righteous lifestyle that led to this conversion. And the next morning, the magistrates come in and they order that Paul be released. And uh, Paul looks at him and says, what every other prisoner in the history of the prison system has ever said, he looks at him and says, no. What you did to us was wrong. This is fascinating to me. Look in Acts 16.37. Paul looks at him and says, you have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens... And have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. Little meek and mild. Paul didn't want to cause any ripples. Isn't this fascinating? He said, no, there are some things that are absolutely wrong. And this is one of them. You need to get this one right. And they find out he's a Roman citizen. Didn't read him as Miranda writes. It even ends with a vowel. Didn't read them to him. Now... They're, now they're scared to death. We have, we have broken the law with this guy. And so what do they do? Verses 38 and 39. They were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them and took them out and asked them to leave the city. Would you please leave? Please don't give us any trouble. So they did. 17.1. Let me see your map again. Left Philippi. And they went through Amphipolis and Apollonia and they came to Thessalonica. And our coming to you was not in vain. I wonder if I'd have said that after having just been beat up. Our coming to you was not in vain. You didn't beat us up. Maybe this is the success. And friends, the reality is we have absolutely no clue where our obedience today is going to take us tomorrow. Paul ended up in Thessalonica because days, weeks, months prior, however long prior, in another country, they received a vision that said, just come over to Macedonia. Well, we get to Macedonia, we get beat up. They tore down our Dixie Chicks poster and put us in prison. This isn't nice. And after they leave Philippi, they come to Thessalonica. And they're able to say, our coming to you was not in vain. If we had not, however, listened to that vision, if we had not just been faithful to go over to Macedonia the first place, we'd have never ended up in Thessalonica. Friends, what is it, what is it that that small act of obedience on your part has brought you to this place today? Do you look back at it and despise what you did those days, weeks, months, years ago? Or do you receive it as God's direction in your life? Saturday afternoon, I was 15 years old. Nobody's at the house, that me and my dad, and he was working on the, at the kitchen table in there. And, and I was outside, I walked in. I walked in our kitchen, and just as I walked in, the phone started ringing. Well, there's nobody there except me and him, and he ain't getting up to answer the phones. That's what that's what he had me for. So, answer the phone and change the TV. See, you, there used to not be such a thing as a remote control. The remote control was named me. Get up and go change that channel. But anyway... So I came in and the phone just started ringing. So I answered the phone, just happened to be walking by. It just happened to ring. Continental Singers were on the other end of the phone. They were looking for one of my sisters. They said, we need somebody that plays viola. Your sister, we want to talk to her. Well, she's not here and she can't play. She's gone for the summer. And I said, but I play viola. And they said, well, are you any good? Fifteen years old, cocky little snot. Yeah, I'm good. (laughs) I was. Not anymore, but I was. And they said, well, you want to travel with the Continental Singers? Sure. Sounds like a plan. Never auditioned for them. They said, be here on January uh, June uh, 17, I think it was. And uh, friends, that phone call just happened to walk by the phone at the right time. It was the narrow neck on the funnel of God's blessing in my life that that phone call changed the direction of my life. Because what God did in my life that summer, I've never been able to get over it. It changed where I am. I am here today because I accidentally, just by chance, opened the door seconds before a phone started ringing. What is it? What is the narrow neck on the funnel in the blessings of your life that has brought you to where you are? For Paul, it was a vision while he was in Troas. They said, I want you to go over here. It ended up bringing him to Thessalonica. And what Paul is saying is, our coming to you was not in vain. It was not a failure. Because God is the one who orchestrated this. He put this together. He put us together. And as you follow God's plan, God's direction, God's instruction for you today, it sets you up for what God has for you tomorrow. Tomorrow. You say, well, I don't like where I am. Don't worry about it. You won't always be here. You'll be dead one day. Look on the bright side. <laughs> you know what? You might be moving out of here this afternoon, first thing tomorrow morning. I don't know. But you're here today. So can we receive this place as God's gift to us for today and in being here be willing to say, I will be faithful. Even in this Philippian jail, I'm still going to worship Him. He says there in verse 1, Our coming to you was not in vain, it was not a failure, because back in Acts 17, many of them therefore believed. He established a church. All of the stuff that had happened to Him up there in Philippi, He comes down to Thessalonica, Thessalonica rather, and He's able to establish a church because many of them believed. Now, if this had happened to you, if they had commonly beat you up, put you in jail, put you in the inner jail, locked you up in stocks, and made fun of you, and then they turn you loose, how eager would you be to go to the next town and say, well, let's give it another shot. <laughs> let's try this again. How many of us would go there and, you know, you know, I think I feel a little PTSD coming on. I think I need to take a break from ministry just for a little while. You just don't understand what I've been through. I mean, I've got burnout going on. It, it's rough and in ministry and what did Paul do look there in 1 Thessalonians 2, 2 though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi as you know we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict friends it is easy to forget what these people have gone through it's easy to forget that these people are people that they had pains and fears and, and discouragements just like, just like we do And yet Paul, when turned out of that prison, did not curse the vision that got him there. He went looking for the next opportunity, and when he got there, he said, you know that we spoke with boldness. How scared would you be? How scared have you been? Oh, they weren't nice to me. I don't think I'm going to tell them the gospel anymore. All of us have done it. And Paul was certainly tempted to do it. And friends, he he endured hardship. He endured disappointment and beatings and... All kinds of difficulty. But he was able to say to them in verse 2, we had boldness in our God. In fact, friends, the fact that Paul continued to preach, I find that is a proof of the miracle of God's work in his life. Because how many of us have said, I'm done with this noise? These people, I'm wiping the dust off my feet and I'm going back to watch an Oprah and Jenny Jones. Paul didn't. The author of Hebrews looks at us in chapter 12 and says, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. But Paul had. And Paul said, I'm willing to shed more if it will get the kingdom advanced. And what he did was what every one of us must do. He looked at those who were with him. He looked at those who were around him and said, listen, I'm scared to death. There are all kinds of reasons to not do this. But what I'm asking you to do in Ephesians 6.19, would you pray for us that whenever I open my mouth... Words will be given to me so that I can fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. Would you please pray for me? And over in Colossians chapter 4, pray that I may claim, proclaim it clearly as I should. And in First Thessalonians 5, it's just real simple. Brothers, please pray for me. Friends, the discouragement, the temptation to quit that you feel, Paul felt it, and his response was, I'm going to declare it boldly and I'm going to ask for these people to pray for me in the process of it. He asked for boldness in the declaration. What's interesting is that the Philippian jailer was not saved because of preaching that we know of. He got converted because he saw these guys in the middle of difficulty pursuing personal holiness. They said, No, Jesus is our Lord and we're going to act like it even in the difficult times. And the Philippian jailers said, I like that. I want some of that right there. And he got saved as a result of their holiness. And we say, well, I'll just leave it, lead a holy lifestyle. And we're hearing more and more people saying, I just want, I want more of God. God, please give me more personal holiness. I want to be an example to you. And friends, personal holiness is so important. It's like the wake left behind a ship that just rocks the lives of people around us. But Paul didn't leave it there. He says, I want the holiness, but I also want to ask that I'll be bold in the declaration of the gospel. There's a bullhorn on the ship, and we've got to have both of them. We've got to have the weight being left behind, but use that bullhorn. Amen? We've got to get the gospel out here, and the two of them working together are what cause the gospel to be carried forth. So as Paul looks at how he got there, he wants the Thessalonians to know, guys, God's the one who got me here. God's the one who put me with you. And so I want you to listen to me first off because God's the one who got me there. First off, how Paul got there. Secondly, his conduct while he was there. How did he conduct himself while he was there? Look back in 1 Thessalonians 2. 1 Thessalonians 2. It says, Our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or an attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man. But to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Paul reminds them, we conducted ourselves in a righteous fashion while we were there. We did not use our position as a means to gain reputation. We didn't use it as a manipulative tool to get money out of you, to get any resources out of you. We didn't come in here to, with impure motives or to spread, the, spread a lie. We came for a simple reason, and that is to share Jesus. And our motives are pure in this. He said, we lived a godly lifestyle. And friends, the reality is, if you act like a jerk at work, you cannot expect your coworkers to come to you first as the one to tell them about the love of Jesus. Had a pastor stand up in front of his church and say, for those of you who act like jerks at work, now he used the word butthead, I would never use a word like that, so I'm just going to use the word jerks. (laughs) For those of you who act like jerks at work, please do not tell anyone you're a Christian, you make it more difficult for those of us who are trying to get the gospel out. And what Paul is saying is, I came to you and I lived a godly lifestyle in front of me. And you know it. There is no way you can get around it. I didn't come there to manipulate you. I didn't come there to to lie to you. I came there, look in verse 4. Not to please man, but to please God who tests our heart. Here's an important lesson Paul had learned. It was this. I can entrust to God my motives. I can leave that one to him. I don't have to prove it to you. I don't have to prove it to anybody else. God is the one who knows. And to the degree that I'm being honest, he will reward me. And to the degree that I'm self-deceived or trying to deceive others, he will deal with that. But Paul had learned to leave even his motives to the complete knowledge of God. Look over in 1 Corinthians 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 leaves something there in 1 Thessalonians. This is just such a powerful principle. 1 Thessalonians 4, he's being accused by them. They're they're coming up with reasons to ignore Paul. And he says, no, you need to listen to me. And they're judging him and his conduct. And he says in verse 3, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. How many of us need that written on the ceilings of our bedrooms? So when when we lay in bed at night and can't go to sleep and we're judging ourselves, to see that written on that ceiling, no, I don't even judge myself. Verse 4, my conscience is clear. Boy, to be able to say that and go to sleep at night. My conscience is clear. And if we end it there, then everything's happy, everything's nice. My conscience is clear, I can do whatever I want because my conscience is clear. But Paul doesn't end it there. He says, my conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. Wow, it is the Lord who judges me. Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time, wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. And we look at that and go, but there are some folks, I don't want them to receive praise from God. I mean, they did injury to me. They hurt me. They offended me. They said that mean and nice things about me. I don't want them to receive any praise from God. But the question is, do you want your life to be judged in terms of your moments of foolishness? In terms of the injury that you have caused to other people? Or do you want Jesus to look at the continuum, the entire life that you've committed your life to Him and you've served Him well in so many ways. You blew it over here and I failed to apologize for it to Him. I didn't do it. Or we can have. I don't, they don't deserve an apology from me. Do you want Jesus to deal with your entire life based on that episode? And Paul looks at them and says each will receive his praise from God. Because if they're Christians, they've served him. And he knows that. And he's going to deal with them in complete knowledge and complete goodness, just like he will deal with you in complete knowledge and complete goodness. Paul had given his life and is an example to these people. He said, follow my example. Look how I did this. He tells us other places that, what kind of person to follow. In First Thess- Corinthians and Second Thessalonians, he says, don't follow lazy people. A servant of God should not be lazy. We labor, 1 Corinthians 4, working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. Don't follow lazy people. And friends, you have a staff at this church who is not lazy. This staff works. I get to see it regularly. This staff works. They are deliberate, they are joyful in their labor, and they labor for the kingdom in this house. This is a good staff to have in leadership with you. But listen to what else Paul says elsewhere in First Corinthians 16. He's talking to him and says, You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts of Achaia, and that here's what they did. They have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. What should be our response to that? Verse 16, be subject to such as these. You see people who have devoted themselves to the service of the saints, to just serving God's people? He said, I want you to sub- be subject to those kind of people. You watch for those kind of people. And Paul says to the Thessalonians, this is what we have been. We have lived a godly lifestyle in front of you. In verses 3 through 6, he says, "This is how. these are the things we did not do. We didn't come to you in error or impurity, desire to deceive. We didn't come to please men. We didn't use flattery or greed. We didn't come seeking glory. So what did they do? Look in verse 7. Verse 7 through the end of the chapter, he tells us what they did do. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel, but also our own selves, because you had become so very dear to us. They treated them like a mother, like a nursing mother, gentle, Affectionate, eager to share. I loved, loved them so much. Mothers are eager to share. Do you think your mother really wanted the chicken wing? Really? Have you ever had one? Don't you know they have those little bitty feathers still on them? They never get all those feathers off there. Donna used to eat the chicken wings when our kids were small, and now you can't get her to walk within 10 miles of a chicken wing. She wants the biggest chunk of white meat that they can get up, pull off that bird. That's right, amen, boy. Drown <laughs> that sucker in some white gravy and we are rolling now. <laughs> Paul said, I came to you and I, we lived an example of gentleness and caring and sharing because we genuinely love you. And then he continues in verse 9. You remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we wouldn't be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. Well, that's something to be able to say, isn't it? Holy and righteous and blameless, dear God, please. Look at verse 11. For you know how, like a father, okay, we had the mother, now like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now we had her like a mother. Now it's like a father. And what does he do? The father exhorts, encourages, and charges us to walk in a manner worthy of God. You know, I kind of picture this as just stages of maturity in the life of a child. You know, you're trying to teach your little kid to tie their shoes. And they come in one day, I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't do it. I can't learn it. And you look at them and say, oh, yeah, you can. That's exhorting them. You can do this. Don't worry about it. You're just... You're taking after your mother's side of the family. I get it. It'll take you a little bit longer. But you can do this. They don't all wear Velcro in Mississippi. You can do this. <laughs> yes, Jason knows what I mean by that. Anyway, you look at your little child and say, You can. Yes, you can. And then they get a little bit older, that awkward, gangly stage, and they can't seem to get anything right. And they're always fine, falling and stumbling, and tripping over something. And, I'll never be able to do it. I'll never get this figured out. And you look at them as a parent and say, you will. I know it's difficult right now, but you'll make it. Don't you worry about it. We used to say, yeah, you can. Now we say, yes, you will. One of ours, one time we had some folks come over to the house and we were going to go somewhere and so they're going to ride in the other one's car and they plunk into the back seat of the car and find themselves on the business end of a sharpened pencil. And they stand up and they look like a bull coming out of a bullfight in Mexico City, that thing dangling out of their back. I'll never get it right. I'll never be able to. So we plunk the pencil out. Take them aside later and say, listen, it's going to be okay. You're going to to make it. I know it's hard right now, but you, you will do this thing. And they just burst into tears. Well, now what's your problem, you know? I've been waiting for somebody to tell me that. I hadn't heard that in so long, and I've just been waiting for somebody to tell me I'll make it. That's the day I won the Terrible Dad of the Year Award, having not given my kid the encouragement that they need along the way. My friends, you look at your kid and say, yeah, you will. And then comes the day when they have to do that hard thing, the thing that they don't want to do, the thing that's scary. And they say, I'm not doing it. And that's what today, as a father, you have to look at him and say, Oh, oh, it's not about you can. It's not about you will. This one, you must. You have to do this. This one, you have to. This is a point of maturity. This is a point of growth for you. You you have to do this. I forgot that call from the Continental Singers. I, was, I had my birthday. I turned 16 and went to the... Um, airport to fly to lax I, they couldn't even spell lax and here i was flying to it and, and i had on my double net polyester you know and i had my viola in my bag and and sweating like a stinking horse and i got about my my family had to leave back, me back there and the the thing was up here down the concourse and i got about halfway and i stopped dead in my tracks and i thought Turn around, go back, beg them not to make you go, and don't you ever pull a stunt like this again. And just about as soon as that voice stopped, another voice came in and said, If you don't go now, you'll never leave. You have to do this. It was scary as Gehenna and Hades combined. And I took another step. And friends, there are times that as fathers, just like Paul did with these people, oh, you must do it. This is how Paul dealt with the Thessalonians. He was gentle. He was giving. He was kind. He was encouraging. He was challenging. He was not going to let them off the hook. And in recounting how he got there and how he acted while he was there, it's almost as if Paul is saying, you people need to listen to me. Listen, God's the one who put us together. And I lived a righteous life in front of you. You need to listen to what I'm telling you. My question for you on this is who would say that to you? Who is it who has at least tried to invest in your life? Who is it who has at least tried to love you, to be kind to you, to encourage you, to challenge you? Who is it who's encouraged you in your walk? It is appropriate, it is right for you to not only listen to them, but to let them know you're going to listen to them. To come to them and say, wow! You care? Wow, thank you. There are so few in this life who do. And you care? Thank you. To the parent who's laid their life down for you. To the pastor who's given his heart to you. To the community group leader who who really cares about you in their community group. How about your youth director who works with your kids, who endures your children, tolerates your nonsense? as expressed through your children. Do you know what they smell like? Have you been in their room? It's appropriate to go to the youth director and say, wow, thank you. As youth, to go to him and say, you tolerate my stupidity? In 10 years I'll apologize for it, but right now I'll say thank you. There's any number of a bunch of people who minister to us in this house that it's appropriate to say thank you. Who ministered to us for years? Who was the pastor from years ago who ministered to you? Who was the Sunday school teacher? Who was that little old lady who just put her arm around your shoulder and said, "We're going to do this thing"? A few years ago, I finally found the guy who was preaching the day I got saved. That was a long time ago, and he was like 347 years old or something like that. I don't remember. <laughs> but still had enough energy to pick up the phone, call him up, brother Green, Skyline Baptist Church, El Paso, Texas. I said you won't remember me. I told him what family's said, Oh, I remember your family. Hmm. Yeah. I remember a few conversations with you. I said, you know, I just want to say thanks. Preaching the gospel. I don't know if he's a good preacher or not. We didn't have, we didn't have recording back then. <laughs> I don't know if he's any good, but he is faithful. And it deserves to hear. Wow. Thank you. I'm serving the kingdom today because I heard the gospel sitting under you. It's right to do this. And it's easy as young people, you know, look at our parents, look at the old farts around church and say, yeah, I don't want to have anything. They're just a bunch of fuddy duds. I have yet to meet a parent who wants to fail at raising their children. I have yet to meet a parent who wants to do bad by their children. No, they want to do well. They have issues, they have failings, they have shortcomings. All of us do. And when you're a parent, you'll get to be the first perfect parent in the history of the world. Until then, would it be appropriate to say, Mom, Dad, wow, thanks. I appreciate it. Who do you have in your life who's at least trying to encourage you to love Jesus more? How are you doing in receiving from them? Paul wrote to the Corinthians. He said, Oh, you Corinthians, our mouth is open to you. Our heart is enlarged. That sounds like a dangerous condition, but he means it in a good way, man. We'll give you anything. I'll do anything for you. What can I do for you? And he tells them Second 2 Corinthians 6, you are not restricted by us. You are restricted in your own affections. We're giving you anything we can do. You're the ones with the problem. And so here's his encouragement. Verse 13, In return, widen your hearts to us. Widen your hearts also. We'll give you anything. Would you open your hearts to us? I love that little verse over in Psalm 81.10. I had a dentist that this was his license plate, his vanity license plate. Psalm 81.10. It says, Open your mouth and I will fill it. (laughs) Now if that isn't an invitation for a dentist, you know, I don't know what is. But that's God speaking to us. He's saying, open up to me. And I'll fill you up. And that's God speaking to us. And He'll say, I'll fill you directly. I'll fill you through people around you. I'll fill you in a multitude of agencies. Will you just open yourself up to me? And friends, to be able to receive from those who God has placed around you who are going to make mistakes, they're going to get it wrong, they're going to be petty, they're going to act like children, they're going to do stupid things. But to recognize God's still working through them, it is right to say, wow, thank you. Well, they offended me. They offended me, and I don't have to listen to them if they offended me. Francis Frangipane said, God offends the the mind to reveal the heart. Oh, man, that's a good line, isn't it? God will use even that offense to draw us closer to Him if we'll allow Him to do it. Would you be willing this week to make a phone call, send an email, shoot a text, drop, take somebody out for a cup of coffee, just say, look, I really appreciate you. You've been a blessing to me. How about that pastor from years ago, that's the little old lady Sunday school teacher hadn't seen her in years. Would you be willing to give her a call? Say, you know, I'm serving Jesus today. I'm not, I, I don't know if I'm knocking the world over, but I'm, I'm doing what Jesus tells me to do. And what else is there? Amen? I'm just going to be faithful. Could you, could you find somebody this week to say thank you to? Back in the 80s, we were pastoring down in Cedar City and had a, had a woman send me a letter one time. She didn't go to our church. She went to the Crazy People's Church up in Parowan. You know, the Pentecostals. Was, you know, Some of the sweetest people I've ever known, they loved us so much and still do. Just wonderful people. And this woman sent me a letter one day and she said, <clears throat> we was in a meeting recently and the preacher said that pastors get discouraged sometimes. I had no clue. Said that pastors get discouraged. They think about quitting ministry and they think about other things and he challenged us to pray would you find a pastor that you'd pray for and she said I'm going to pray for you one year I'm going to pray for you every day and at the end of every week I'm going to write you a letter to outlining the verses I have prayed over you I'm going to send you that letter every week I'm going to do that for one year and at the end of one year she said I fulfill my one year commitment I'm going to keep praying for you but I'm not going to send you the letters anymore you're a blessing to me I treasure those letters Came in a good time. Who is it in your life that you would be willing to just look at them and say, thanks for at least trying to love me? They've made some mistakes. Have you met yourself? Can you say thanks? Two things today. God is the one who brought you here. How many of us are tired of living in Salt Lake? Friends, God's the one who brought you here. Your faithfulness today, your obedience today is what sets you up to be in God's place for you tomorrow. Are you willing to just say today, I'll serve Him. I'll be faithful to Him right here. Right here today, Salt Lake City, I'm going to be faithful to Him today. This place needs the kingdom. It needs your witness. It needs your voice. Are you willing to say, I will be faithful here? Secondly, are you willing to look at those who are at least trying to be a blessing to you and say, I'm going to receive receive Jesus through you. I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to say thank you. And if somebody comes up to you this afternoon, this week, and says, you've been a blessing in my life, would you be willing to look at them and say, wow, thanks for letting me know. I sure do appreciate it. Friends, we have so much work to do. We have so much work to do. God has placed us here. Will we be faithful to serve Him here? Let's pray. Father, thank You so much. As we look back up the trail at all those people who have moved in and out of our lives, some of them gone now. Some of them live in different places, not in our lives anymore. But Father, for the time that they were there, we want to say thank you. Thank you for sending them our way. Thank you for the help that they brought in bringing us closer to you. Father, for the place that we live, it's so easy to get distracted, discouraged. I deserve better. I'm so tired of this place. God, You're the one who brought us here. Whether by vision, circumstance, job, family, God, however it is, You're the one who brought us here. And to curse this place is to curse Your direction. Father, we don't want to do that. And so Father, we want to put in our hearts to say we receive this place. Wherever You have for us tomorrow, that's good. But for right now, for this place, we say thank You. While we're here, we want to serve you well. Father, for those you've placed in our lives, thank you that they are a step in the process of making us more like Christ, till Christ is formed in us, which process you will continue until the day of the Lord Jesus. Father, to you first of all, we say thank you.